Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to a new edition of the Age of Infinite. Today, we have an amazing guest on the line. We have Rick Tumlinson. Rick, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Uh, the topic we're going to be talking about is uh, the title we've come up with for this program is called The Space Revolution. And let me share a few things about Rick and why he's on the line. Rick and I go back, I don't know how many years now. When was the pioneering? Or that was four years ago already? Five uh, years ago? Five. Five years ago. Mm -hmm. Five years ago. I had been, we had started the Project Moon Hut project out of NASA, and Bruce Pittman said to me that I had to go to this event in Washington, D.C. And I wasn't sure what it was. He said it called the Pioneering Space Summit or program. And I said, sure, whatever you want me to go to, I'll go to. And this is where I met Rick. Now, Rick has a long history in the space industry. He's been involved in several space companies and nonprofits. He's been credited for partaking in and being involved in all sorts of different initiatives, including possibly being there when the space revolution happened that we'll have to hear about potentially he's testified on capitol hill he signed up the first space tourist most of that probably doesn't mean as much as what the content we're going to go over today which is this the space revolution so i'm excited to learn from you today rick you teach me what you can what's the uh give me the bullet points that you've put together and i'll take them and then we'll start from there Okay, well, we have several, and we, we can see how the, uh, the format rolls out. Um, yeah, I, I started with uh, what is the space revolution? Okay. Next. Um, how does it relate to what we call commercial space and um, the term new space? Are they going to be two different commercial space and new space? They are actually, and I'll, just... I'll explain the difference. Okay. Um, Next. Uh, given that we're on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, um, uh, I often talk about Apollo's children, or as they're called in a documentary about some of the stuff we did, uh, the orphans of Apollo. Um, who are they? And um, in a sense, uh, what would we be doing if we do go back to the moon? How, how will we do that? Um, and um, those are two separate things, but... Who are okay. these Apollo's yep. children and, and how will we go back to the moon or, or Mars or what's about to happen? Um, okay. How and why did I get into this? Oh. Uh, Hopefully you weren't pulled uh, uh, kicking and screaming as I was. Uh, I'll explain later, but uh, you'll, you'll tell I, me later. Yes, I am. Uh, I am an accidental tourist, as they say. Um, okay. Who is Dr. Jerry O'Neill and why is he so important? Something that's never addressed enough. Yeah. Um, some call this the quote unquote benevolent conspiracy. Um, this does relate to Dr. O'Neill and I'll, I'll come into uh, an explanation with you about how that started. Um, okay. And the fact that what we're seeing with Elon and Jeff is not just billionaires playing with rockets. This is actually a planned, uh, almost 30 year long uh, project for some of us. Okay. Um, and why do I go back and forth between 
things like starting this race frontier foundation which is i think 30 years old 31 years old uh, the earth light foundation new worlds and then going back into companies like deep space industries um, or my new venture capital company space fund okay any others is that uh three more we can okay. see how they go give me give me the next um yeah. I, I recently in social media people have been asking me about pictures they've seen where i'm hanging out with the u.s air force and uh working on um what is called space force um and i've been invited to some sessions there i'd like to explain perhaps why i'm doing that and what does that okay. have to do with my goal of expanding life and humanity into space okay um what else well this uh, kind of goes back to the earlier conversation and it's you know we've i've spent about 30 years plus i'm dating myself of course um trying to change the conversation about space and so where is the conversation today where does it need to go next okay um and some of these will be answered within other yeah, questions. Know, they of always course. do. I, yeah, I, sure. I, we'll jump. We'll jump. I know our conversations already jump all over, so this will we'll, we'll manage. Yeah, this is going to be a field mosaic that people can put together into an image. <laughs> um, how do we answer? How do I answer the question when somebody asks me after one of my talks, "Why are we spending our money to go into space? We have so many problems down here." I'd love to hear that one because I have an answer for that one too. Okay, great. Um, why am I writing a space manifesto, which is my latest private project? And another thing that I've been speaking about in public a bit is what is the Declaration for the Rights of Humanity in the Universe? These kind of roll together. And then last, um, and I think this is, you know, uh, whenever I do a talk, I go into a phase where there's a big finish with music and galaxies. And I talk about why are we here and why are we here now doing what we're doing? Um, and so we might, if we make it that far, we might go into that. No, we will. We will. There we are. Well, there you go. We're going, we're going to hit all of this. You're going to teach today. I'm your student. You're going to teach me everything. Okay. So well, I, I want to walk away knowing everything about this, about Rick Tumlinson's changing the world, if we want to call it or, or attempts. And so I'm, I'm, I'm ready. So let's start off with this. What is the space revolution? So the space revolution is a term that, that I use to help encapsulate and, um, and capture what people are seeing when they're seeing things like uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, uh, the X Prize. They're hearing about asteroid mining. They're hearing about the private sector going into space, uh, um, the end of the space shuttle, uh, the flights of private spaceships uh, to and from the space station. All of these things, in a sense, are manifestations of what is literally a revolution in how we look at space, what we're doing in space, who's doing that, and the goals of those people when it comes to space. And so that's what the revolution is. It's bigger than um, just the question of, of billionaires playing with rockets. So that's that's the short answer. Okay. So it's just a phrase or a term because I haven't I haven't heard this space mm -hmm. revolution in my five years in the space industry. So is this something? 
you've just come up with as a means to kind of counteract the fourth industrial revolution? Uh, not to counteract anything, really. It's just my own encapsulation of uh, of what I see happening and trying to, um, you know, the, the way we describe things, the words we use to describe things is very often um, creates or helps manifest what that thing is in terms of how we act with it, how we react to it. Um, and I'm trying to help people understand. So, yes, you could call it the fourth industrial. Or you could call as long as people understand that this is a movement, a revolutionary change. I don't care what you hang in front of the word revolution. It is a change, though. Um, you know, you can talk about going into a space renaissance, all of these different things, rather than having people look at it and think it's these individual um, little projects and things like that. I'm trying to have people understand. Mm -hmm. So if you were to put a date on it, what day, what year, day or whatever, would you say that the space revolution started? Um, I would say that it started in the mid-1970s. Um, and it, uh, I could almost put a specific date on it. I think it was 1976. And that was when Dr. Gerard K. O'Neill, a Princeton professor, published the book, The High Frontier. So H-I-G-H? H-I-G-H, Frontier. Okay. Um, that book so that, that... is the, the, the starting point. So you must have been young, 17 years old. I was young. <laughs> I was young. I'm 55. Are you afraid of your date? <laughs> no, no, I, I am. A, I'm a leap year child. I have a birthday every four years, which helps with denial. Um, but uh, I am. Uh, how old am I? 60, 63 Earth years. Okay, so that's right. So I'm probably not far off than what I'm right. saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, literally, I, I, I have to think about it sometimes because the whole leap year thing has thrown me off my whole life. Well, so. it's a, it's an interesting that you use that you use that thinking because I and I, this is a sad story. I had a friend who, you, when he became, I think it was forty, mm -hmm. he would celebrate the first anniversary of his fortieth birthday, the second anniversary of his fortieth birthday, and he was always on his birthday. <laughs> And then he died young. So just be go. careful. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, so okay. So let's go to the next one then. Yeah. How does it relate to commercial and new, uh, commercial and new space? So commercial and new space are, um, if you look at the space revolution, let me give it a little bit more definition. Um, the space revolution is this idea that we're moving out into space as the next uh, level, the, the next thing that we're going to do as the human species. Um, and that, that means we're going to be living out there, or shall we say, settling, or whatever uh, words you know, are appropriate um, to, to describe the fact that people will have homes and be living in space. So as we move into that, and that's the dream that we have, and I know that's the dream of everybody that you see doing these different things, then you have to um, you have to be able to finance it. You have to be able to to pay for it. Now, the kinds of people and companies that are doing this are what we call new space. 
Uh, new space is a word that we literally, I'm, I'm using that phrase too much, but that we actually sat down at a table and made up um, in around 1999, 2000 at somebody's dining room table. What do we call this? Uh, and new space companies are basically those companies that are funded by, uh, created by, operated by, or have the goal of opening space to humanity. And those those companies and projects, which can, some of which uh, be not-for-profit, are um, the drivers. They're, they are the engine, not to be confused with the goal and destination, which some people do. Now, in government and in traditional space, or what some people call old space, I call it more traditional. I don't want to be that insulting. Uh, but um, they use the word commercial space. Um which is in itself a really interesting indicator because that calls out the fact that maybe aerospace industrial complex is not commercial. Um, but commercial space are those kind of companies that are out there doing private sector um, activities with the goal of creating a profit. I, I like to say sometimes that when it comes to space, nobody stays until somebody pays. And that can be the government or it can be uh, customers uh, um, and uh, come from places of where you're making money by what you're doing. So it's sort of the engine of what you might want to call the space revolution or the frontier movement. So you're uh, so let's start with the first question, just because I'd like to have it on record. Mm -hmm. Who was at the table? <laughs> um, basically, it was the board of directors of the group, the Space Frontier Foundation, that we had founded in 1988, uh, 20 years before. Um, and or 10 who, years. Who, who would give me some of the names? I want to know if they're um, still around. I, uh, I I will go blank on it. Um, I can tell you that there's uh, uh, Charles Miller, um, uh, a guy named Jim Muncy, uh, Benigno Muniz. Um, yeah, Bill Boland, and uh, I think Robert Noteboom. These are people you probably don't know. And that's one of the points I want to make at some point in our conversation, that there are people who have poured their lives into making this happen. You know, we created the Space Frontier Foundation in 1988 um, with the goal of making this happen. We immediately went to war with the establishment. Um, uh, immediately, uh, well, we started with a 40,000 name petition calling for a return to the moon, uh, which was delivered to the first President Bush's desk. Um, and then we ended up going into battle over the space station. We were the only pro uh, humans in space group to actually uh, attack what was to become the International Space Station. Um, we did that because the government, in our belief, shouldn't be building buildings and that we didn't buy the fact that President Reagan, had, when he had said that uh, it was going to cost $8 billion and be done by like 1992 or 1994. Um, and um, as it turned out, as you know, uh, they stopped building the space station. The, the one that's up there has never been finished, actually. Uh, somewhere north of $100 billion of expenditures. And it doesn't do many of the things they had originally told us it was going to do, such as be a port 
to space or a place to test different kinds of gravities that you could then use in a settlement context. So we went to battle um, over the station and uh, almost killed it by one vote, or as my friend Bill Gerstenmeier says, who is in charge of human spaceflight for NASA right now, they saved it by one vote. Um, and we went on from there and began to support other activities. Um, in fact, we traded our battle over the station to save a vehicle called the DCX that was being uh, a project that was run by uh, General Pete Warden and uh, later was famously piloted remotely by the astronaut Pete Conrad because we believed that the idea of single stage to orbit reusable space systems uh, was important. Um, a very quick little story on that, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Yeah, after we um, had, had that vote, and it really isn't that the Space Frontier Foundation was some mega powerful uh, group, but as you find in parliamentary systems or in the Knesset or the UK parliament, uh, when the votes are tight, small groups can have great leverage. And we were in that position at the time. So after um, that one vote, after the squeaker by which the space station uh, stayed alive, um, we got on the phone through a, an intermediary and spoke to uh, a gentleman that we later, I later butted heads with uh, a lot named uh, Dan Golden, who was running NASA. And Jim Muncy and I uh, told him that, look, there's this little vehicle called the DCX that the military has funded. Uh, it was initially part of the Strategic Defense Initiative, or what was called Star Wars. Um, but it was running out of money, and the White Sands test facility had almost locked the gates and said, you can't go any further. Uh, we told Mr. Golden that if NASA would take it over, we would drop our attack on the space station permanently and step away from that. Um, he agreed. The program was transferred to NASA, and we immediately kept our word and stopped our attacks on the station. Now, at the time, there was a former President Johnson advisor, old fellow, amazing guy who many in our field know, who passed away, named Tom Rogers, one of the few people I've ever known who could pull off a seersucker suit. Um, and Tom had this amazing accent, this amazing voice. And at one point after this, we were having a meeting in D.C., and Tom pulls me away and he's like, well, Rick, so what are you doing? You, uh, you, you got this space station now. You're stuck with it, aren't you? He said, it's, you got this lemon. You got this lemon, don't you? The space station. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to turn it into lemonade? And I mean, that's how we talk. And, um, and I'm sitting there, well, like, well, yeah, let me think about that, Tom. So I ended up uh, testifying shortly thereafter in front of the House Space Subcommittee. And with my associates, we came up with this concept called Alpha Town. Um, the idea of Alpha Town was basically that, okay, if you're going to have a federal facility um, out on the frontier, let's look at an analogy. And by the way, I, I do want to be very clear to your listeners. Some of the things I say may sound a little unpolitically correct. Don't uh, worry they, about this. This is global. You're talking to me. Right. You're teaching me. Like I okay. said, you don't even have to worry. No one out there, you don't even have to okay. talking to me. Teach me. Okay, David. Don't be offended if I am uh, I'm not offended by anything you say. Oh, I know yeah. you well enough. Bless you, my friend. <laughs> Bless you. So anyway, the point is that um, we took the analogy of the fort on the frontier, a fort which is built by a federal entity 
in a wilderness. And mm-hmm. that that fort then, in the interest for whatever reason that that entity puts it out there, can then become a purchaser of goods and services. Because what happens is a trading post will spring up around the fort, and then the people who live in the fort will use the secure route back to quote unquote civilization as a trading route. And the technologies that are needed to get to and from the fort, maybe they're stagecoaches or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, I am from Texas. I have an old West heritage. So those analogies will show up with me. We'll, we'll excuse, I'll excuse you for that. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> no comment. So moving along, the, uh, the idea of the, uh, the fort and the frontier, um, you know, if you cut to 100 years later, um, that fort is a, a, a tourist attraction or a monument in the middle of a thriving city an economic industrial complex yeah. called a city. And so in a way it can almost be uh, the analogy. Another analogy might be a grain of sound around which you grow a pearl. Um, these, the idea of actually taking this federal expenditure called a space station, by the way, this will apply when we go back to the moon or wherever, when the government does um, and using it to help um, drive economic activity. In other words, for example, um, the purchase of goods and services. So in my testimony, and, and this was uh, 1996, uh, in front of the House Space Subcommittee, I called for all transportation to and from the space station to be provided by the private sector, for example. Um, and um, eventually, perhaps, to have energy in space uh, provided by the private sector and also habitation, the, the modules, the, the buildings in space would be provided by the private sector. Therefore, the tax dollars that people are putting into it, whether they're European tax dollars through ESA, uh, or even Russian or whatever, but this is our government here in the US that I could try and influence, that money, rather than being spent, is actually being invested in the opening, the economic opening of the frontier. So that's kind of... Uh, where that came from now, it took us only, what, 23 years to get to the point where we've got SpaceX and Blue Origin, um, you know, flying to and from or about to fly to and from the space station with with uh, crews um, over time. Um, or even, some- even Jeff, even Jeff Manbar's company is that private institution. Yes. Delivering uh- over 700 payloads. Absolutely. And they're leveraging off of the federal facility that is funded by taxpayers. Um, But what's really important, going back to those people sitting around the table whose names you did not know largely, these are the people that made this happen. I recall being up at two in the morning sometimes with people counting votes on the floor of the House and the Senate to protect the funding that was going into what we this program called uh, COTS uh, and this uh, yep, this, I've, I, we we did that at the last Na- NS uh, National Space Society meeting. Mm-hmm. We a lot talked about COTS. Right. So we we in the Space Frontier Foundation wrote the initial white paper that led to COTS. We were the ones okay. who started that project that eventually became COTS. And then these volunteers who who you don't know were on the ground counting the votes to protect the funding of companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and COTS because the traditional aerospace companies, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and uh, others, the aerospace companies that um, and the uh, politicians that they uh, 
uh, work with, I'll, and I'll put air quotes around work with, um, mm -hmm. we're trying to kill that project and we're draining the funds away from it. Go ahead. I've heard, and this is a discussion with someone that you and I both know, mm -hmm. that we I just had recently about how with all this new space, there still is a tremendous amount of challenges that new space, using your terms, new space has with the commercial space industry. And I, when I use that term, I'm using it lightly because Elon Musk is commercial. But we're, I think we're talking about the Boeings and Lockheed Martins and the big companies when you use that this terminology. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that it, I know it's breaking through, but I've heard people say that they feel that it's going to be extremely difficult to maintain and really fight these large behemoths. It's a challenge. Um, look, Boeing, just to be, so people understand, or so you understand, um, so you, that you understand, the Boeing yeah. has a commercial airline company. Boeing's space activities are not necessarily what you would call commercial. They are a contract company that largely depends on, for the majority uh, to, uh, in, in many ways of their space uh, money uh, comes from the government. Um, and the heritage comes from the government. Now, there's some well, degree- the United, space, the United Space Alliance, which was with Boeing and Lockheed to deliver and take care of the space shuttle. Things like that. Yes, ULA is, is what it's called. ULA. Yeah, so you see this all the time. Now, United, yes. ULA, United Launch Alliance, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Now, yes, Elon and Jeff and these other folks are taking government money, but they're also doing it using different contracting methods um, that are uh, more pay for delivery, uh, those types of things that come out you, of that. You, that's, that's, I'd like to, can you give me a few of those? Because I'm interested in understanding how you separate them and what would be the distinction in the future. So you're saying that there's a, a different type of contract methodology that they're using with the United States government mm -hmm. or governments around the world that makes these different. What are those? Okay. So there's what we're tr what we tried to do with COTS and what we're trying to do with more of a, a frontier enabling model with the government is so, where so you basically I, I'm going to stop you for I'm going to stop you for one minute just because we're going to use this word COTS a lot and I've I've heard about it at the National Space Society we've talked about it I just want to hear your uh, your description of it so that I'm on the same page with you Okay, the basic underlying concept is that there's basically two phases in the relationship between the government um, and the private sector. The first phase is there is an interaction between the government and the private sector in terms of uh, re technology and development of particular kinds of things or services or the ability to deliver services. Um, and the government participates uh, back and forth with the private sector to help develop those things. Uh, for example, uh, uh, launch systems. Um, then it moves to another phase where you have the government actually paying for the service, the delivery service that these launch systems are, um, are enabling or are carrying out. Um, it is unlike, uh, for example, with the space shuttle where you had a single provider that was working directly for the government using heavy, heavy levels of government specification, et cetera, 
to develop and manage a service um, under government supervision. There is um, two kinds of contracting. There's what we call cost plus, which is the, I hate to use the word again, traditional, but it's the way that a lot of aerospace uh, companies uh, in the US operate and military companies. It's how you get a million dollar toilet. It's why aircraft, military aircraft are so expensive. Cost plus basically says that, you know, for example, I'm sitting here drinking a, uh, out of a bottle of water. And if, if I'm a, a contractor and you're the government and you want me to design a bottle of water for your soldiers or for your astronauts to use, um, I get to charge you 10% of whatever it costs me to develop this bottle of water. Now, in that case, the incentive would, of course, move towards why would I charge you $100 to develop a bottle of water and only be able to keep $10 when I can charge you a million and keep 100000 So the incentive within the cost plus model is to make things as expensive as possible. So that's different than we need uh, um, 10,000 bottles of water that are this shape and will fit into this. And when will you deliver them? That's a very different type of thing. And when you get into that kind of a model. What do you call that? Uh, cost, cost plus is one? Yes. Uh, Purchasing? Uh, cost plus is, is the one. And, and the other one I would call um, the rest of the world. Uh, I mean. Uh, <laughs> right. I was just saying purchasing. Purchasing. <laughs> you know, it's like I, when I hop into an Uber, I'm, you know, I'm paying for to be taken from point A to point B. I'm not paying. I am paying a little bit through the amortization of the cost that it took to develop it, but I'm not paying for, uh, you know, 10% of the cost of all development, blah, blah, blah. It, it's just, yeah, it's what we do every day. Um, okay. So, and, yeah, just traditional purchasing, purchasing, getting a product, putting it out for bid, finding out what the best service model is, whoever can deliver the product at a certain reasonable price, and you buy it. Right. It fits the needs. Okay. And, and at the same time, Part of our mandate in the in the white papers and things like that that led up to to the cots. Um, and again, I, I you know I, I I may have mentioned to you in the past this idea of success has a million fathers or mothers. Mm -hmm. um, when when we started down the path of cots, there was nobody talking about this. Nobody. It was really uh, generated by people through the Space Frontier Foundation uh, and through some white papers. There was a seminal white paper largely written by a fellow named Charles Miller with, with Jim Muncy working on it uh, in the early 90s that kind of laid this out. Um, and uh, we used to uh, compare it to Ralph Nader's paper that you may or may not remember, which was unsafe at any speed, um, which you know led towards car safety type things. It was meant to lay out this idea that this is what we have to do. Keep in mind, the difference between a frontier orientation that is being manifested in the revolution versus aerospace industri industrial complex and the space centers and things like that is our goal is to get to a point where regular folks can go into space and create communities to build homes, to build um, moon huts, <laughs> to be able to build whatever I, I love they you. wanna do. I, I don't care what anybody says about you. You just got a million points. <laughs> okay, but I, I, yeah, that's what I want to see happen, right? And and so, 
when it comes to that, it really is our goal is creating, you know, look, I'm going to take a little side path here that kind of lays something in here. Um, I have three principles or what I call the, uh, uh, the three keys to opening space. And, and, and you have to have these or you can't open space as a frontier. One is low cost, reusable transportation, that, and eventually safe, but low cost, reusable transportation uh, to and from the place you're going. Mm-hmm. Two is the ability to utilize the resources and the place where you're going for anything you see fit. And yeah. three are governments that either help you or stay the heck out of the way. If we have those three things and we can go through how they're, how they, they're being achieved or where they're coming from or what their state is right now, but if you have those three things, you have the elements necessary, the keys, to be able to turn space into a frontier. And you, would, you could apply that to air transportation, rail transportation, cars, boats. Put, you can apply those rules to any of those and see how having all of those line up, if you took any one of those away, then the, the economy, the freedom of, of regular folks to be able to participate in those systems to get to and from places would go away. Um, it's it's interesting here you say these but again because I've I was at the pioneering space uh, summit prog- summit and the first conversation I had with Bruce which was in Palo Alto about how I would redesign the space industry hit on all three of these mm-hmm. and I never studied anything about space no, I didn't and- have any clue what space was yeah and so well- there's that's I guess that's one reason there were a lot of things that happened at that pioneering space uh, summit that I said, oh, my God, these people are off track. And mm-hmm. you are reiterating why they were off track. I didn't know it from you. I just felt it. Mm-hmm. No, that's why we had them at the summit to try and get them on track. <laughs> OK, look, I, I, I want to re- let me we've mentioned this summit a couple of times. Let me explain to, to or remind you. You know, sort of what happened. Yeah, I, I know I nothing did. about it except I was invited and you. Yeah. yeah and, and so here's the deal. We had two days. Um, having been in the position of uh, one of the leaders of the rebel rebellion or revolution for so long, um, I had gotten to a point. I, I went through some personal family crises slightly before that. Uh, it gave me some pause. Um, I took that time and uh, started reevaluating. And again, I was sort of the battle-worn, you know, soldier for the cause for so many years. And this is around 2014. Um, right. And 2013. Um, basically, I lost my mom in an accident uh, in uh, 2011. And for two or three years after that, I was here in Texas helping my father uh, kind of get back on his feet out in the country spending a lot of time walking around pastures at night and looking at the stars and just, I kind of just pulled out. Um, and I'll say this with, with no sense of embarrassment. Uh, in fact, uh, be proud because it just recently passed, but uh, um, I had uh, basically gotten clean and sober in 2009. Um, okay. And so I'm 10 years as of now. 
And um, Congratulations. It, it helps with eyes opening. And I'm, I'm saying this because if anybody out there, you know, or, or you or anybody, you know, let's say um, is interested in that it can be done. Um, and mm -hmm. so what happened was my eyes opened. I got clarity of vision. Um, I was walking around in this field thinking about, OK, I really want to focus on the big picture. Why are we going? Who's going? How do we help that happen? So I had a call with Bill Gerstenmeier, the head of human spaceflight. Now, Bill basically has the job of carrying out the human space program for NASA. He's the guy who he writes was, the He checks. was at the event. He, he was yes. at Pioneering. Yeah, I'll come yeah, back to that. I remember I'll explain Bill. that, how that happened. Yep. It wouldn't have happened without Bill. Um, so he almost was the embodiment of the other side, <laughs> of the other guys, right? What you might want to call traditional space, old space, the the aerospace industrial complex. That was Bill Gerstenmeier's job, uh, protecting the, uh, what I, I had been actually writing editorials about the giant NASA rocket called the, uh, they, uh, the space launch system. I branded it the Senate launch system. Um, <laughs> this is, and these were brutal editorials and uh, a lot of political stuff going back and forth. So I gave Bill a call and he apparently was in Moscow. His secretary said, well, I'll pass the message on. Uh, I remember I was driving through Texas and I, I get this call uh, from this, you know, weird number. And it's Bill Gerstenmeier calling me back from the runway in Moscow where he had just landed. Um, and he must have gotten a message from the secretary. and said, why the hell is this guy calling me? Um, and I pulled over and we had the most amazing conversation. You can imagine it started out somewhat uh, roughly um, you know, I'm attacking his multi-billion dollar projects, um, and I've been doing it for decades. And so we started talking and we got to the point, both of us were committed to having a, well, what, what I would call a conversation about possibility. And so we got to a point where it was like, you know, what if we just didn't talk about rockets and launch systems? What if we just talk about where we're going and why? And it was like, bam. And we started having fun and engaging each other. And, and what happened was coming out of that, it's really, uh, really interesting, David. Once, once you have a, a mental shift like that occur, once you're able to, to step to the other side, to maybe view from the other person's perspective or, or, or take on a different approach to something, it begins to yeah. cascade and it begins to grow. It's, it's almost like you're cracking open a doorway into a different perspective on life. So that led me to think, you know, what if we could do what Bill and I just had happen on a larger scale? Now, I had been pushing for a long time for people to start using the word, and, and we can talk about it because it's, there, there are arguments for and against it, but at the time it was very important to, to get this concept across, the, the word settlement, mm -hmm. um, as, as it denotes people living somewhere. Um, there are better iterations of it. There are stronger ones. You've got many yourself, and I know you've. We, we I, I think you were at the last uh, meeting where I said that summit or colonization are challenging words for certain people. Mm -hmm. Colonization, so, yes. colonization, far more than settlement. It's far but, more than settlement. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and by the way, we do slip into that. Um, uh, we use the word colony. It isn't meant offensively, uh, you know. And I've spoken many times in countries recently in Morocco and others where I had to be very careful and, and apologize in advance in case it came out of my mouth. But <laughs> settlement, and it, and it did, settlement um, 
is really about people living. And that's the idea. It's to talk about more um, people living, building these homes. You know, you're, you're, I'll say it again, just give you that extra point. The moon huts, building your, or whatever they are. Out yeah, there. Pro- Project Moon Hut is a home. It is it's a, a home. hut. It's a it's a it's a box with a roof and a door in another place, and that's where Bruce came up with the Project Moon Hut because we started off. The first paper I wrote was a box with a roof and a door. Exactly. And he called it a hut, and that's right. how it came. Project Moon Hut. Right, and I um, in the this project I'm working on, this writing I'm doing, I define, you know, home uh, in terms of, you know, the, the the home is the place you go to. Uh, you know, after your job, the, the home is the place where your your family is the place you operate out of into the world, um, which makes something like a space station not a home. Um, and w- what we're after is homes in space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. If, yep, ex- but, absolutely. Yeah, settlements and easier. We, we've got to come up with a good one because you can't say the homization of space or the homing nope. of space. Um, but anyway. At the time, it was important to try and get that word in there. Uh, I had been bringing it up in speeches uh, prior to that. And so decided to hold this uh, summit. And what's really interesting is I wanted to call it the Space Settlement Summit. But I was spoken to by some uh, congressional staffers. I remember, I think it was Jeff Bingham who had been uh, uh, a a major uh, staffer um, in, in Washington, in the Senate, um, and and uh, he and some others said to me, "Look, you don't want to call it a space settlement summit, because then the the traditional players, the aerospace companies, the others, are not going to show up." Mm-hmm. It, it's and and I remember one guy said, "Rick, you got to get them in the car lot before you sell them the car." And 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 I was like, "Oh, you're right," you know. And and so we changed the word to the Pioneering Space Summit. But it really was the first space settlement summit, because as you know, the entire discussion was how do we get the hundred people we had in the room? And we had uh, Mitt Romney's advisor, uh, Scott Pace, who now runs the National Space Council under uh, the Trump administration. And we had Lori Garver, who would have been uh, a good candidate for Hillary's pick for administrator. Uh, We had Boeing, we had Lockheed Martin, the aerospace, we had Buzz, uh, but then we had uh, representatives, uh, you know, from the different um, commercial new space companies, um, such as SpaceX and others in the room as well. And at the end of the second day, as you recall, roughly, there, it was roughly 100 people, but we got um, all except one. Um, and it's funny how we always focus on the one, but all except one. It turned out she was a contractor and um, her uh, her boss was in the room. She didn't want to commit. Uh, basically agreed that the word settlement should be included in the language that precedes NASA's funding. Um, in, in yeah, the, I remember that whole conversation. That went on and on and on. Oh, my God. But we got it. We got it. And what happened was it was uh, – uh, what we used to call in the foundation ended up being uh, a cultural cruise missile in that it just, we launched it into the society. We launched it into the conversation and it started to take root over the the years that followed. Um, and last year almost made it into the final bill from which NASA is funded uh, in, in what's called conference committee where the House and the Senate get together at the end of the process and write the actual words. It got pulled. 
um, we believe by somebody from the aerospace community. Um, but this year it's been reintroduced um, by an unlikely pair of senators who are not usually involved with space. And so we think this year the word settlement and development, which goes with it, will be uh, put into the NASA language as one of, not the only, but one of the major goals of the US human spaceflight program. I would love to see this happen in every country. I would love to see one by one country. The reason this is important, David, is because it is, it is the, let's call it the, the North Star, the, you know, the Southern Cross, whatever it is, your guiding, your guiding point by which you can judge all of your other activities. Um, it allows you to compare what you're doing with where you're actually trying to get. So that's why that's important. And uh, you and I have never sat down and done or gone over Project Moon Hut, but mm -hmm. our four-phase approach is the first one is to get a box of the roof and a door, which is to get a laser focus for civilization on Earth, not on all the extraneous, because to me it feels like a shotgun going off. Everybody's going in different directions. Mm-hmm to get a singular target, which is to create a box with a roof and a door, a place that people can live. Four people, eight people go around the moon, the 27 days, come back, and then it goes to an industrial park, then it goes to extended stay, and then it goes to community. So that has been, since 2014, that has been the initiative, is to get a laser-like focus, or you call North Star, into an initiative that can draw all communities on Earth to one central beacon. Mm -hmm. And exactly right. Same and, thing. and yeah, and, and, and I want to be very clear. I, I have no, um, no pride of ownership of any of this. And a lot of it, um, uh, bits and pieces were, were made up and discussed by people much smarter than me before I ever heard oh, of it. There, there's a ton of people that went into everything that we had done. Yes. 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 Is, yeah. Uh, we have to acknowledge that. Um, you build on the, build on the shoulders of others. It's just, it's interesting because I didn't know this story when I went to this event. I just went. Mm -hmm. And so, so let's do this. We've got that story. Is there anything more to add to that story? Because I want to get to wow, we number have, three. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. We're going to go. I, I did this interview on my other podcast series called Redefining Tomorrow with this amazing guy, Jeffrey Warnick. And it was the first time I went over an hour. Uh -huh. First time. And he talks about democracy and changing systems and Bitcoin and currencies. And he's a brilliant guy. And first time I'd ever gone over an hour, we went three. So I've decided that if the program's going and there's content and there's, we're just going to keep on going as long as we can. So let's get on to Apollo's children. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Apollo's children, and, then, and this will we'll knock out two or three all together here, uh, including Jerry O'Neill, because that's part of this. Um, Apollo's children, or the Orphans of Apollo, um, which is the, the title of a documentary about our mere when we took over the Russian space station for a little while by um, um, Michael Potter. Um, the, um, that reference goes to the fact that if you look at the 1970s, um, and this is where it starts, it doesn't stop there, but this is where it begins. Um, we'd been to the moon. We had Voyager and Galileo. We had the Soviet space program. We had the American space program. Uh, amazing things happening uh, in space. We had uh, 
Skylab, we had Salyut, uh, all kinds of things happening. Um, and if you were a little kid, as I was, uh, and you were, um, in that period of time, um, you're sitting there watching the TV. And, um, you know, on that TV set, you're seeing these inputs coming into you. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're really bizarre and unique in all of history types of inputs. You're hearing that there is a Cold War going on in places like Vietnam and around the world, um, that there are people on the other part of the world who want to kill you using rockets, by the way, to launch things at you that will destroy the entire world. We were actually still having drills that had to do with mm-hmm. uh, with uh, nuclear launches. Nuclear fallout. Yep. Yeah. The idea that somehow climbing under a desk would protect you, I don't get that, but okay. Um, and all of these types of things were going on. And it's almost like if you flip the channel, it would be nuclear disaster, Apollo, um, you know, uh, rockets on parade in, in Red Square, Voyager. You know, and you turn the channel and um, and then the next one you hit is Star Trek. And you roll on and roll on and then moving into the 70s, you know, along comes Star Wars. And you're, you're seeing this melange of images of death and destruction and the end of the world, possibly in your lifetime, at the same time that you're being presented with both the reality of people doing things like driving cars around on the moon and and you know uh, probes going out beyond the solar system and amazing feats of science and technology um and the third element mixed into that is you're getting the science fiction of captain kirk you know all of this kind of thing happening and as a child that wasn't real i know exactly it was real you're making my point um as a child that begins to blend in your mind you're, you're you're putting these things together and going you know i want to have a positive future these people are doing it i want to go make that happen now during the 70s we'd come out of vietnam all of this stuff um, was happening and ahead of us then off in the distance supposedly around 1980 or so there is this thing that's being talked about called the space shuttle and it's being pitched at the time as a vehicle, completely reusable vehicle. If you look at the early images, um, and that vehicle was going to bring the cost down of going into space to around $100 um, a pound. Um, at that point, if you think about your own weight or what you might want to take with you, that meant we could really go out there and do stuff. Great things were going to happen. So in the middle of all of that, in that cultural melange, and there's still the, the, the in here in the U.S., the bad taste of the Nixon scandal and the lack of belief in what we're doing. There was this Princeton professor teaching physics named Gerard K. O'Neill, and he was trying to engage his students in thinking about the future in a positive way. And he uh, came up with this idea. I won't get into the whole process of it, but he came up with this idea of uh, what he called the high frontier. That, the, that an expanding technological civilization should expand beyond one planet, uh, the surface of a planet. He was really about what I, an area that I've designated for years as what I call free space, which is the place mm-hmm. between planets. Um, and 
And he wrote this book, The High Frontier, and it basically also did several other things at once. It said, you don't have to be NASA astronaut. You don't have to be a government employee or a military person to have the right to dream about living in space. It said, um, we can use the resources of space, the concepts of free enterprise, uh, democratic institutions, people working together, and we can go out there, we, we, you and I, regular folks, um, and, and build, now he did call them colonies at the time, it was a different time, but build colonies in space. And it was very interesting because in the book, there's a, a section in the book where like, I think there's a, a little girl writing home from her, her house in, in space, her home. Um, there's a very much of a humanistic aspect to it. But Dr. O'Neill went one step further. Rather than launching a book out into the culture and being right about it, uh, hey, I was right about this, no, nobody ever did anything, um, he formed an organization called the Space Studies Institute. Um, and um, you could join that group if you believed in the book. And the Space Studies Institute then would actually have projects we became what were called senior associates. And they were, we were the elite of the revolution at that point. Uh, and um, senior- did you, get, did you get a little certificate and a badge? Oh, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> we got lapel pins, gold ones. And yes. uh, uh, the point is that this book went out there. And so you have these interesting people like, um, there's this young guy uh, in high school at the time, um, and he wants to, uh, uh, he's he's got a book club, and uh, he has these twelve books that he's uh, you know selling to his friends, and uh, one of them is the High Frontier, and he has this dream of starting an online, eventually an online bookstore, um, and a guy named Jeff Bezos, and yeah. he reads the High Frontier and goes nuts over it. He actually gives his valedictorian speech when he's graduating from high school about uh, I'm going to go build space colonies. I'm going to make money, and then I'm going to go build space colonies. Yes. Um, did, did, did he talk about this last year at the new, uh, new space conference? Uh, new Worlds? The yes. New World Conference? Yes, yeah. he actually did. Uh, he's talked about it several times. He's, he won the, uh, the uh, O'Neill Award uh, over at the National Space Society last year as well. Um, but the point is that he, uh, he picked up on it. There was another friend, a guy I've worked with, and competed with uh, off and on for many years, a guy named Peter Diamandis. Um, he picks up the book um, and eventually leads to him founding with a fellow named Todd Hawley, who was an amazing rock star of our field who we lost during the AIDS epidemic. Um, they founded the International Space University, the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Um, there were other people that got together and created a group called the L5 Society, L5 standing for Lagrange Point 5, which is a place between the Earth and or within the reach of the Earth and Moon's gravity, where if you're going to build a place in space, that's where you'd want to put it. It's prime real estate. And that, um, and that well, isn't, is that the, that's this place where uh, gravity doesn't, you can sit where gravity is equal on both sides, so you can kind of be in limbo. Yeah, in a way, it's like if yeah, in a way, in in terms of gravity, it's almost like a, if you're looking at a creek and there's it's a neutral a, point. Yeah, if you're looking at a creek and there's a little eddy where the leaves and stones are just kind of going in a circle, 
that's that's yeah. like a that's like a Lagrange point. Right. That's a, that's the L five. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's that organization got started with Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and uh, and, and Jerry Purnell, Arthur C. Clarke. They're all in that organization, and uh, all these groups start to spring out of this concept of the high frontier. There are copycat books written, coffee table books with bright illustrations. Eventually, NASA spends a million dollars and does a study on building space colonies that comes out of this. Um, so he he had this just seismic uh, effect. And and yet he was like a very humble guy. I, I should mention, it's not my project, so I'm not plugging myself here, but um, later this year, there is a documentary film called Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y, uh, that's coming out. Um, and I've seen some of the rough cuts. It's pretty amazing that goes into Dr. O'Neill's life because he is the unsung hero uh, of this, this field. And yet he's responsible for perhaps the biggest cultural change in the history of humanity. And, and I say that absolutely with no grin on my face. It's totally true. So what happens is these guys get inspired. I was lucky enough. I was living in New York City at the time. And I founded the L5 Society of New York. We met on the Intrepid aircraft carrier. Uh, which at that time was basically a ghost ship. Um, now it's a major museum. And uh, we started having meetings about this. I eventually came across Dr. O'Neill and the Institute in Princeton. I volunteered. I told them, please let me in. I will do anything. I will mop the floors. I started doing this interesting reverse commute from New York City to Princeton and eventually became a staffer at the Institute. Um, over time, I started meeting these other people uh, like Jim Muncy, who's a legend in our field. Um, and we started realizing and believing that maybe the Institute was working very quietly, as was Dr. O'Neill's nature, non-controversial, um, to try and they were actually building some of the actual technologies. They did a thing called the mass driver. They built a test that was featured on an old television show called Nova. Um, and they tested the ability to use an electro magnetic uh, launch system to launch things off the moon. And, you know, I was privileged to work on it. I didn't, well, between you and me, I didn't really work on it. I stood in the corner and handed people wrenches who were actually working on it because okay. I, I was just so oh, thrilled that, to be there. That's still, that's still working on it. You yeah, were yeah, I know. But, but I was just a junior at that point. I was just thrilled to, to, to freaking be there. Yeah, of course. You know? It of course. sounds exciting. Yeah. And so what happened was, um, this ripple effect starts to go out from him. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, it even made it over to Japan. I remember uh, there was a whole series of, uh, of cartoons called Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, and if you look at the Mobile Suit Gundam, it takes place in O'Neill colonies, right? Uh, so anime even was affected. All of this stuff just started coming out of his, his work. So there we are. Um, and we decided uh, in our New York group, um, uh, I met another guy named Bob Werb, who was a, an extreme liberal uh, uh, from uh, up, what we call upstate New York Jewish real estate family. And and then Jim Muncy, who had been a protege of the right wing Republican Newt Gingrich and myself. Uh, I guess my thing is I'm a Texan, like you said, you forgive me. Um, and we get together and say, you know what, we need to be a little more radical on this. And so we founded the Space Frontier Foundation. And as I told you, then we engaged and we became the the uh, frontline activist revolutionaries 
So my friend Diamandis and his guys, Bob Richards, who now runs a company called Moon Express, went off and did the educational stuff, International Space University. Um, the L5 Society then became um, merged with the National Space Institute that had been founded by Werner von Braun to act as a cheerleader for NASA. Um, later on, uh, Boeing and the aerospace companies tried to buy off the L5 Society and the National Space Institute by offering them $100,000, which would seem to like a lot of money back then, if the two would merge. Um, because really? they, yeah, they were concerned that these L5ers, who were frontier-oriented people, were getting a little crazy talking about all the settlement stuff. They wanted to harness that energy and maybe take that chess player and put it on their side of the board. Um, there were interesting periods back then where back in those days, as you recall, we used to use what were called 35 millimeter slides to yeah, do what would, what would be a PowerPoint now. And Boeing used to put out sets of slides that would show this, um, originally it would show this, the, the shuttle development, um, and then it would show the space station. And then the last slides would be, um, human settlements in space as if the viewer would then understand that somehow if you supported the space shuttle and the space station, you would end up with human cities in space. Of course. And, and that was the game they were playing. And, and so that's how you ended up. Uh, that's how we ended up with the National Space Society was. And it, it's interesting because you'll still see the hardcore L5 people. In fact, they're kind of coming back into their own now. Uh, but for years, the, the National Space Society um, never met a NASA program that they didn't like and um, never took the side of anything against anything that NASA was doing. Um, and then gradually over time, uh, they've gotten it and have started to come on board. They never lost at the core the vision of settlement. It's just that, you know, they kind of got a little bit co-opted for a while there, but they came back around. Um, you know, we've all had those periods. I mean, I remember the, the very, very, very first time I ever um, ended up, um, I testified in front of the National Commission on Space in the 80s. Uh, it was the first time I ever got called anything official. And I actually, at that time, at the very beginning of the 80s, thought, you know what? We need more NASA astronauts on talk shows. That will solve everything. Yeah. Uh, there was a show on back then. It used to be called Johnny Carson. Um, uh, <laughs> and I like a, 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 a remember. I'm 55. I know. I, I know. You were yeah. watching Johnny Carson. Okay. <laughs> and and I used to I used to think that would solve everything. You know, it's like when people say, if you just give NASA more money. It, it actually would have solved a lot because everybody watched Johnny. Yeah, but all it would have done would have meant more money to go into the aerospace companies, and it wouldn't have yeah, really. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's how you it wouldn't, spend the it wouldn't money. have solved the challenge, but it would have created a different impression of space. Right. It's how you spend the money and why you spend the money, not how much you spend. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So anyway, all of that happened. And again, comes from Jerry O'Neill um, leading up to uh, the point where um, in the 90s, I ended up getting the best job on Earth where a wealthy guy and you should always find a wealthy guy if you know one or can capture one. Um, care and feeding is a little rough, but everybody should have one. Um, and, um, he put 
$25 million into a bank account. And in this bank account, he, um, he had invested his money in dot-com companies. This was the early 90s. Um, and he told me that I could uh, run this endowment for him and give away 50% of the increase in the endowment every year. The rest would go into funding my salary and my office and travel. Um, and it was called FINES, the Foundation for the International Non-Government Development of Space. And we took that money and we funded things like uh, experiments in laser launch, solar sails, uh, 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 asteroid mining, um, uh, things like that. We did a study on how to keep the mirror from coming down, uh, which yeah. led eventually to us actually taking over the mirror for a year. Um, yeah, but Jeffrey told his whole story. Right. And I was the one who actually asked, suggested to Walt that he hire Jeff um, during the mirror project. Because when we first arrived in Russia on the first trip, uh, Jeff was working for the Russians and sitting on the other side of the table. Um, yes, he was sitting, he was working with the Russians, yes. Right, and we were sitting on this side of the table, and you can see actually, in, I actually have physical pictures that show Jeff on the other side, then it kind of shows him in the middle, and then we're all in one room on, at the same table. And, yeah. um, and I suggested that he become uh, the CEO of what we called Mircorp. Yeah. And um, because he he had the free enterprise credentials, he had some amazing training from the Russians, um, and we needed a CEO who could have a, a foot in both camps. Um, and then I transitioned out um, right away and went back to, to fines. Um, but but Mircorp was the name. There was a moment where I came up with Mircorp, um, and... I remember turning to the Russians in the room and saying, okay, why don't we call it Mircorp? Um, and does this mean anything weird in Russian? Because I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> uh, does this mean I hate your mother or something? You know, And um, so that's where we came up with the term. Uh, but anyway, um, so one of the things that came out of fines, for example, was uh, there was a guy named Bob Zubrin, um, who was a Martin Marriott engineer. We've been looked at how been looking at studies of how to use the Martian atmosphere to create rocket propellant, and he had shown up at a Space Frontier Foundation conference. Uh, we liked him, and he was trying to put together a thing that later became the Mars Society. So, we at Fines wrote him a check for a hundred thousand dollars that he got a matching check for, and he started the Mars Society. Um, and the reason we did that at the time was we wanted to create a social group that would put pressure on NASA to get out of low Earth orbit so the private sector could take over low Earth orbit and NASA could go off and start exploring Mars. This was back then. It's changed a little since then, but, and so has the strategy. Um, now, the funny thing about Bob is then one week after the check cleared, he kicked me off his board. Um, <laughs> Rightfully so. I know. I know you well enough. I, I would kick myself off the board. No, what did he, you do? Um, what did I, you do? I used the other M word too much. Moon. Ah. Moon. Um, and I yeah. talked about. You had other, to have done something. Yeah, I, I talked about other destinations. And now this was a different era because now Bob is working on Moon Direct and all of that. But back then, it was taboo. With, with Bob and his acolytes to talk about 
going to the moon I'd or like anywhere to else. tell you that over the past five years, it has not been fun being the moon guy with everybody talking about Mars. Oh, yeah. It has not been fun. Yeah, and it's ridiculous that anybody cares about any of those differences. Right. It, it, it's it's been why are you working on the moon? Everybody's working on Mars. I met with Charlie, uh, the administrator. What's Charlie Bowden? Bolden. And and everything was about the Mars. And I said we got to go to the moon first. It just makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everybody was Mars. So yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I, I, it is. It's just ridiculous. It's, the moon is right. It's near us. It's close. It sits there. It changes the dynamics of our entire conversation about Earth, in which you've heard me talk about mirth, moon and Earth. This is where we live between moon and Earth. Let's change the dialogue. Once the paradigm shift happens, everything else opens up. Well, yeah. And, and you put within that, you know, what I, I my approach is and maybe there's a book here someday. I'll write called All of the Above. All right. And, and it's really all of the above. Uh, it, you know, this is saying that the moon is better than Mars, is better than free space, is better than Leo, is better than is really like saying uh, if you were coming over to this new world from Europe that, uh, um, you know, what the hell? You're going to go to Ohio. Ohio sucks, man. You know, it, it's all about Florida. You know, it no, it's uh, all comes yeah, together. Well, Yet, yet, if you're going to go along the way and it's right at a pit stop, it might be a good place to pick up some food. Oh, no, there's, so there's let's a go. great argument. There's a great argument for the moon as a place to learn how to camp out in a high-radiation, dirty environment. Uh, and, by the way, by the way, you can almost picture yep. the moon like learning how to camp in your mom's backyard because then you can run home quickly into the house right, right? that's go, exactly yeah mom you, you know you, you you need some and you use your you use your solar sails if you need to get some medicines quickly there with a laser beam and shoot the medicine to the moon yeah whatever you know i yeah. one, of, one of the things i i will tell you this and it's very important to understand with me i i have some pet technologies i have some pet things that i've done in different companies like deep space industries where we uh where we turn resources into a thing um but Really, um, outside of that, I whatever works, you know, yeah. you know, if 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 it's the son of Fidel Castro coming up with communist uh, uh, fairy wings that gets us out there, I'll right. take that's, it. That's that's exactly what we've been saying. I'll exactly. take it. Exactly, it, it doesn't matter. We're all in this together. And you know what, David? Here's the really important point. Once you get out there, a couple of generations. It doesn't matter where you came from no. because where you came from will become them and where you yeah. are will become us. And they will. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's for sure. And they're going to revolt and say, you know what? Screw you. You don't understand our problems. How dare you tax us? We are space people. You're Earth people. And then well, they're going to. That's, that's the to some degree. That's the seven eaves story. Yes. Yes. A good book, by the way. Um, yeah, very good book. I, also, I finally read it after everybody recommended it. Let's go on to this next yes, one. Yes, sir. How about benevolent conspiracy, Elon, Jeff? Okay, so the benevolent conspiracy term uh, comes back into Jerry O'Neill. We were at a Space Studies Institute conference, um, and there was a bar there in Princeton, a, a very famous bar with uh, uh, a big painting by the classic American artist who used to do the uh, Norman Rockwell um, on the wall. And we're all sitting there, a bunch of us. Some of the people had gone to bed, but the, the tone was generally shared. Um, and um, we're having a few beers, and we decided, a, a group of us, that we were going to pledge our lives and fortunes to making 
to creating the breakout of humanity into space and making it irreversible in our lifetimes. And we had a toast. And um, I think it was Diamandis, uh, one of the guys said, well, why don't we call this, you know, it's a conspiracy. Somebody said, this is a great conspiracy. And I remember one of them said, well, it's a benign conspiracy. Let's call it that. And I made a joke that I think that sounds like a tumor. Why don't we call it a benevolent conspiracy? Um, and it became that. And, uh, you know, some people don't even remember that that happened, but there were a bunch of us there. And it really was kind of that approach that we're going to all branch out into our fields. Some go into education. Some people like Muncie went behind the scenes into Washington and became a chief staffer uh, in Congress. Uh, I became the loud guy out in public. Um, all of these different people went off in their different directions to begin to make this happen. And what I'm really proud of is the fact that 99% of them are, those who are still alive, are still fighting the fight and that they've done such a good job of changing the global conversation. Um, when we got started, the idea of human beings living and exploring and um, um, building communities was, was not a thing. Um, the space program was a national nationalized entity. Um, civilians were not invited. Um, there was no such thing as space resources. There wasn't new space. There wasn't this idea that somebody could buy a ticket. None of that existed. But for this group of people inspired by Jerry O'Neill, who became the benevolent conspirators and went out and made the work happen. I picture you. I actually picture you guys standing around, taking out one of those uh, hunting knives and cutting your hand, and then doing a, a a blood shake. You know what? Don't get me started. I never figured out why those guys always cut the middle of their hand. That's such a stupid I thing to do, right? <laughs> like, why would you do that? What? You're gonna need it's, that. It's, You're gonna need your no, hand. You, you know? And you need the hand, right? And then it, then their hand falls off a yeah, week later. Yeah, right now, prick your finger, you know, and and, yes, and prick, prick your pinky so, finger. So, anyway, go ahead. How many people were? How many people were in this benevolent conspiracy on their start? Well, I, I, I you know, again, this is not a formal thing. I'm I'm using yeah. that moment to identify a group of people who were at that event uh, and came to those events. Um, but I, I would say a couple of dozen. And then that expanded okay. outwards. Um, now, keep in mind, if you were to ask Elon Musk, are you an O'Neillian? He's going to say no, um, because he, um, you know, he's going to Mars and he's going to be very strict about the fact that Jerry O'Neill was talking about settlements and free space, etc. But actually, Elon is an O'Neillian because he wants to do human settlements. And Elon would not exist with a company called he's, SpaceX. A he's a beneficiary. He's a beneficiary of the people who've worked before him to get him to a point where he could create rockets and yeah. And use we got him as funded. We got him as funded. Yeah, we we, we got him the, the path, and and he really is. And and you know that's an old, like I I would like to think like Carl Sagan hated Jerry O'Neill, hated him. Okay, we used to have a, a toast that we would do at the end of our. Uh, space studies institute conferences we'd all be out on the beautiful grass outside of the institute and freeman dyson would be there and this guy named gordon woodcock who had been the actual station designer for boeing and um, um john lewis who's the guru of asteroid mining and and us young turks and we would do this toast and it was a quote from carl sagan that gerard k o'neill is a robber baron who wants to plunder and pillage God's pristine solar system. And then we would all go, and so am I. 
um, because Sagan at that point was very much focused on astronomy and all of that, which is awesome. But he didn't really buy this idea that those dirty civilians should be out gallivanting around the solar system and, you know, anything less than a few hundred years from now, you know. Um, there's, there's people who still think that. There are. And, and God bless them. And we're going. Yeah. So, so let's let's get to the uh, uh, back and forth between initiatives. Oh, OK. So. Going back to the idea of the commercial space and new space uh, being the engines of realizing our dream of opening the frontier, creating an economy, uh, um, and then, you know, what you might want to call a mirth economy or uh, a, a space industrial economy. Um, yeah. you, you have to make money. You have to figure out how to make this thing happen. And so for me, there's two aspects to this that, that came to play in terms of why I occasionally forget how hard it is to go out to develop a private company. Uh, one is, I remember uh, fairly clearly uh, back in the mid-90s, um, speaking at a NASA event, doing my brimstone, we're going, and, and a guy asking me, he said, you know, that stuff is easy for you to talk about because you're so far uh, removed from it. I mean, you, you don't have to raise the money. You don't have to make it happen. We work on this stuff every day. You're just evangelizing about a concept. So if you cut to a few years later, you know, I led the team. We took over the Russian Mir space station. We flew a commercial mission, one. Um, and um, I've been involved in several uh, space companies, which um, several of them didn't work. You know, at times, uh, if you ever saw Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there's a scene in there where the guy's like, we built a castle in, in, and then it sank into the swamp. And we built another one and that sank. And then we built a third and it sank. You know, and, and, and then we've got this one, you know. Um, so I've had several companies that, uh, that haven't worked well. But on the other hand, um, now, after especially the Mir project, somebody uh, wanted to challenge me. I could say, yeah, how many of you guys have actually owned a piece of the space station? You know, um, I'm, I'm in there. I get my hands dirty. I believe you have to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. So having gotten in there many, many times now, um, and gotten engaged in the private sector, had some successes and done some great work, um, it helps me to to understand what's necessary and also to be able to then help others by, you know, frankly, the scars that I've got, by the knowledge that I've gained of, of how the private sector works, how private companies work, what what you need to do, how you get a bond, how do you get beyond your own the stars in your own eyes? to be, uh, you know, ruthlessly business-like at times. So, yeah, that, that's why I do these things. I go back and forth. It's I, all part of the I've same had thing. To, I've had to personally kind of, let's say, defend people in the space industry. Uh, there's a person that I did an interview with whose company folded and people aren't sure where the money went, and it's the same questions over and over again. And if you, the way, the take that I've got on this is that these are new like any new pioneering tech industry of any time, of any time in history, there are people who will make it and people who don't. Yep. We happen to be at a time where raising money is done through venture instead of through banking. 
it's or some type of crowdsourcing or funding and actually there's a few people on here whose businesses have not survived and that's just going to be uh the industry is going to be littered with them right there's uh, there's just going to be a ton of them and one of them started an organization they had 80,000 or 100,000 people who had signed up to become part of their organization uh as a nonprofit educational space related company yeah and come to find out they didn't make it i don't think there's a formula yet at the same time i think the individuals who've partake in this space side not unlike dot-com bubble not unlike any of these tech businesses we're going to see a lot of them that don't make it and un unfortunately both deep space and planet resources who are high-flying models of space are or have been uh they, they spoke very loud and didn't deliver on that promise however so it's however I, let me if i go ahead i'll let you finish but go ahead i i just think it's part of the, it's part of the game and luxembourg i'm going to be in luxembourg in a week week and a half and luxembourg invested in sure in, I, I, I signed the planet. first deal i was the one who signed the first yeah. contract with luxembourg um what happened there look the uh, I, I had a interview recently with the wall street journal and, and spoke about this i founded you know deep space industries and there are several challenges that came out of it, but let's always let's. You also have to remember, both companies are still alive. They were just acquired by other companies, um, and so there were exits. And both companies, um, the vision that's at the core of them is actually still. You know, just watch over the next year or so, slowly being realized. Deep Space Industries has three water-based thrusters that are in space right now, functioning perfectly on the Hawkeye 360 spacecraft. Um, so I, I'm not- I, I, I understand that. I sure, want, sure. I'd like you to think, take a, another pass at this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've paid attention to the banking industry, but mm -hmm. banks don't fail. Mm -hmm. Banks get acquired. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason is the money has to move. There's reasons for keeping people's assets, protection, a variety of them. And I, I'm not an expert in banking, yet I've been involved with people in banking. And they say banks don't fail. They're always acquired or absorbed or something. So the sure. fact that these two were put in, on the chopping block and they were acquired, one of them by a blockchain guy, I think is who, who made a lot of money in crypto or blockchain. It just means it's transforming, yet to the general public, the announcement went out that way. And my, my point is, it doesn't matter. These are going to happen. They just happen to be high-profile, flag-waving, watch-us companies that mm -hmm. didn't make it. And that it, it won't stop the industry. It just transforms it. No, I, I agree. And, it, and look, it was a, a completely educational experience. And one thing that the two companies did do historically, um, and we were competitors and friends, was we were able to work together to get laws passed in the United States recognizing the right of future companies to operate um, and retain their uh, their assets, their resources in space, number one. Number two, um, if you go back before our two companies existed, space resources was not a thing. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't legit in any form. It wasn't even out there in the world's conversation. Since the yeah, two companies dialogue, yeah, and we created yeah. it's a thing now. Now, the yeah. two companies themselves, um, yes, and look, we had issues, we had management issues, we had finance issues, uh, all of that. But in the meantime, 
you know, Luxembourg, United States, UAE, different countries have have now jumped in and they're moving ahead with new companies that are doing great work. Without Deep Space on NASA Ames and Daniel Faber, Mm -hmm. I don't know if Project Moonhut would be around. Yeah, no, it's great. Daniel, by the way, is working on a great project now about moving propellant in space, which is one of the things we wanted to do. Um, and so there's a lot of good stuff happening. Uh, so, so when when you when you use this term, why go back and forth between initiatives? What did you mean? Because they're the same, just different aspects. Space is not just a social movement. It's not just a business. It's all. It's all of these things. You okay. have to to have a successful revolution. You have to have a change in the conversation. You have to have a change in hearts and minds. But you have to have the finance. You have to be able to make uh, the trains run at the end of the revolution. And on and on. And for me, it's somewhat seamless at times. Now, uh, just to address a couple of things you mentioned, um, you know, I have the, the new company, uh, and what we're looking at is how to apply that knowledge. We work with new startups and entrepreneurs, and, um, you know, that we're out there getting them started, trying to get them funded. We're raising money based on that, and it's, it's being, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's challenging. But I think we're going to be able to make a real difference in helping some of these little guys get started and not make the same mistakes and learn from some of the positive lessons um, of the different things. That I, I we don't did. want to go on, o- over it on the phone. Did you read the 40 page document I sent you? Um, I started to look at it. <laughs> I, okay. I have more. It's to all do. in there. Yeah, we'll have to go over that. Yeah, we'll have so, to. Go. So, so let's go on to the next. Sure, you sure. had a few points. One of them is the that you're helping to fund. This, what's another one? Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'll mention the name Space Fund. Uh, but we're yeah. not going to do a big promotion. But what, the reason I want to no, mention no, no, we're name, not doing any promotion. No, There's no. no promotion on the show. Yeah, right. And so the one thing I do want to mention is that we are putting out a thing called the Space Fund Reality Rating uh, as a service to the field where we're putting lists together of people in these different sectors that are worth looking at. We're, we're, most people who look will never be able to invest in us. That's fine. But it tells you like there's a hundred launch companies and here's their management. Here's what we think are going to happen to them. And that's worth looking at as well as the other resources out there. Um, you yeah. need to really understand what you're looking at before you get involved in these companies. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and it's really helpful. So, so that'll that'll tie into that. our post conversation. Absolutely. So let's go on to this next one. Let's go on to Space Force. <laughs> you, you told me you had this. You, you we we spoke last week or a week before, whatever it was, and you said you were just with this the United States Space Force, and you I think the words were, "I'm against militarization of the space," and what am I doing with Space Force? So that's your intro. Well. Here, here's the here's the uh, there's a couple of angles here. Um, I got invited to Colorado Springs. Um, uh, there is no Space Force formally yet. This is the group that's working on it coming out of the Air Force and Space Command. Um, and I got invited uh, to a private meeting of people to look at what we believe will happen in space in the next 30 years. For some reason, they think I might have some insights into that. And so we brainstormed for three days on on this, looking at what China's doing, looking at what we're doing, looking at, you know, and my job, as I saw it, was to have them understand this frontier concept, to, if they're going in this, whatever direction they're going in, 
they need to understand that they have the ability to help open the frontier through how they spend their funds um, and help to make sure that um, citizens of all nations have the ability to navigate, to utilize, and to act in space. I personally, and in fact, um, there's an initiative that I've started with a, a friend or two that you'll be hearing about in the next few months, am putting out a statement, which is sort of what I would call a no-kill tech statement. And I know this is confusing and ironic. How can I work with Space Force? And before that, um, and our statement is basically that we will not participate in, fund, or support the development of technologies that will be used to initiate the death and, and destruction of people in their property. And that's where I stand. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't sit down and work with people uh, in the military, uh, many of whom don't want to do those kinds of things themselves. Um, by the way, you know, as you know, most wars are started by politicians, not soldiers. Um, and the idea here is to help them really try and, and do this right, to understand that there are resources in space, that there are, there is this, this movement of people who want to live out there. You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at the, the Captain Cook or Captain Kirk model, okay, to, yeah. to explore, to, to do good stuff. Um, and, 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 you know, to also maybe enforce some civility and things like that. But look, the militarization of space, and I hate this, it kills me, has already started. Oh, of course it is. It's happening. And it's happening in a big way that most people aren't aware of. You heard about India recently doing a, an anti-satellite test. Uh, the U.S. has done it. China's done it. Uh, others have done it. Um, it's out there. And it's happening. And, and, I, and I believe you used two words, and I want to make sure that it's very clear here because you, you did use them. And I'll now, as I said, I sometimes I talk to the listener. James Cook and Captain Kirk are two separate people for people who don't know that. Oh, yes. Captain Kirk was the fictitious character on Star Trek, who was the captain of the USS Enterprise. Boldly went with nowhere and was gone. Don't have to go much into that. But there was a guy by the name of James Cook. And he was in the 1700s. He was an explorer. He was a British explorer. He traveled the world uh, as part of the uh, a captain in the Royal Navy. And I believe he was responsible for mapping Australia. He, he was really a, a, a frontiers man, uh, a frontiers person uh, who did amazing things. So you use them and you use them just in quick reference. Mm -hmm. Want to make sure that there's a, at least a context to that. Yeah, there's a, this, is so, the, this is almost sort of the benevolent aspect of, of how military can be used. Um, it, it heads over towards disaster relief and uh, these other ways that the military can be used um and, and and it's you know it's, it's it's a more positive spin it's almost as if um and i would support this if it became space guard instead of space force you know or the space core instead of space force so my 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 role in there was to try and uh, get them to understand this uh to to help them see potential pathways into the future where they could play a positive role um there were discussions of the interaction between the u.s and china and uh, and russia and things like that um but i absolutely had nothing to do with and stay away from any of the uh let's call it direct war fighting stuff i I'm, i don't were, participate were in that the 
I believe that also the Chinese anti-satellite tech was used on their own satellite, available weather satellite, mm -hmm. and it was successful putting debris into space. And there's mm -hmm. those yeah. type of, those are challenges that uh, we're a warfaring world. Yeah, it's, and... un it's totally unfortunate. And, you know, this gets to some of the stuff we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, but the idea of, of um, you know, we're human beings. We, we are, look, David, we are still apes. We are apes. <laughs> Our sticks are now made of steel and have computer chips in them. And yeah. we still have some of the tendencies of, 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 uh, of apes and, and this kind of uh, aggressiveness and uh, that kind of thing. Now, hopefully, as more women take control of our society. No, actually, there are there's data points that when women take over society, they are more ruthless. That they the wars that they fight or through sometimes the the king or queen or the but they fight viciously too. That's why you a cat fight. You've seen the two women fight. It's a horrible fight. Men punch, done fall. So <laughs> there's a here's a data point which might be useful to you at some point. And I'm not sure how true it is, so let's just take this as a hearsay from David Goldsmith. I once read that there have been over 17,000 conflicts since recorded time. 17,000. Mm -hmm. And at any point on Earth, there are six to eight conflicts going on. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter when mm -hmm. since recorded history. Yeah, I mean, and all one has to do is listen to one of my favorite channels, the BBC, and um, you'll hear about... <laughs> Most of them <laughs> within within an yeah, hour. They're 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 there. So so with the space force, not that you have to divulge anything. Mm -hmm. Did you? When you left, mm -hmm. were th I I know they'll understand that there's more resources. They learned some of the things that I learned in the very early days. Did you feel that they were going to be that they will make that move, or are they ingrained in the? protectionist belief i think it's going to be all um, uh, i think it's going to be both look uh, the, the the space force and the other things they're doing are just bringing together all of these different aspects of things they're already doing you know communications support for people on the front lines um you know i mean there were talk of like you know how do you launch a, a rocket from the united states that can carry uh, a squad of soldiers or a support to the other side of the world in 90 minutes um, things yeah. like that, but also, which is also an energy beamed from Earth to all of the uh, stations, so that there's a constant flow to the military because that's one of the biggest challenges. How do you get uh, energy, fuel resources to combat places? Right. And I think the Amer the Americans have 800 bases around the world. Right, and that gets into things like you said. You could beam uh, energy from space. Which, by the way, the Chinese are working on a space solar power program, yeah. um, and they're um, one of the interesting things. We had a great briefing on China, and um, it's amazing the stuff China is doing. Um, it's interesting that uh, a lot of it occurs under the banner of, uh, and I'm going to say this, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong. Uh, I'm very bad at pronunciation, but Sheng He, who was the Chinese admiral, um, who okay. had gone out before Columbus, was heading down the coast of Africa. Uh, with ships that were so big, you could put the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria on the deck, um, proclaiming the greatness of the emperor that he worked for. And Shenghe was a eunuch, 
um, which were the, the main people working in that empire at the time. Uh, there was a rebellion or a change. Um, the eunuchs were basically decimated. The ships were recalled, they were burned. The trees large enough to make the mass were destroyed. All of the maps, everything that went with them was destroyed. China pulled inward. And now, interestingly, as they move out into space, that is one of the flagship names that they, they use as a part of the description of what it is they're doing in space. They are going out after uh, 500 years and they're yeah, very they're... proud of it. They're doing a great job. Uh, it's amazing what they're doing. Um, but there has to be you know, balance in all of this. Uh, there are a lot of geopolitical issues. I, I believe China should be invited to work on the International Space Station. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, I believe people should work together on this. Um, the, go ahead. Uh, I, I'm, I've been in Hong Kong, uh, between New York, Hong Kong, for nine years now. Mm -hmm. And there is a misconception of many of the challenges that the earth that people face in the south pacific region in china mm -hmm. and it would i think the inclusion as some of the my friends have said who've come and visited and gone into china they'll they walk out saying there are really nice people in china oh, hell thinking, yeah. what are you talking about and then i've worked in moscow i've worked in st petersburg there are really nice people in moscow yeah so what's your point there are bad players everywhere uh, the to help just for the purposes of it, Z H E N G, huh, is how the spelling is, and uh -huh. it was in the Ming Dynasty in 1371. He was born, uh -huh. and I don't, I'm not exactly sure it was Zheng, but the N G has a nasal sound, so ung. Uh -huh. You really don't say the G on the end, so Zheng. Uh, that's my little bit uh -huh. of Mandarin, uh -huh. and I probably screwed it up, so someone's going to have to tell me later why. Yeah. So. Okay, so anyway, we're so seeing some we're seeing that that coming back, and um, and we're very you know there's there's there, of course the U.S. there is strategic interests and balances and all of this kind of stuff, and and again I, I come back constantly to the fact that I want people to get out there, and I'll, I'll tell you this one of the things that kind of spun their heads around um, that I brought up, and it's something that's I think going to be very interesting is if you take the ability of having onboard AI, onboard uh, um, uh, printing, uh, you know, um, additive printing, 3D printing, and your own ability to maybe have asteroid or lunar resources, uh, unlimited energy from the sun, the ability to isolate so you can head off in a direction where nobody else is. One of the things that we're going to encounter for the first time, essentially, uh, in, in a massive way in history, are people who are operating under no flag but their own. They're, they are tribal units. They're family units. They're going to control the entire supply chain from beginning to end within the unit of their habitat, of their, their moon hut, their Mars hut, their colony in space habitat, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they're going to be independent. They're going to be flagless. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, they're going to declare themselves to be the, you know, whatever. You know, we are the, the settlement of people who like SpaghettiOs and um, and if you like SpaghettiOs, you can be in our settlement. But if not, you're out the airlock. Um, you know, there, there are going to be these kinds of things going on that are going to transform. And, you know, with the blockchain, all of these kind of things, creating different social interactions, different ways of funding, different ways of trading. Um, and I don't think anybody is ready for that. I think there are people focused on pieces of it. But I think that the culture that's going to arise in space, you know, and then we're going to split off 
just for a second, we're going to split off into, you know, there'll be what I call Homo marzialis, Homo lunaris, Homo spatialis. There are going to be different branches of humanity occurring. Now, we're not now ready you're getting for exactly to uh, back <laughs> to the seven eaves. Mm-hmm. Is that you've got the development of different style of uh, different pieces or different types of delivery or, or thought. So the mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar. There's a country that's been formed recently, mm-hmm. Lieberland. And Lieberland is in uh, near Croatia and Serbia, part of the Yugoslavian bloc, that piece of land that was not taken. There's a guy from crypto or blockchain, forget what it was, made a fortune, bought this piece of land. And he's a, a Czech guy. And what he's done is he started a new form of governance using you your voting and your contribution and no taxes. And taxes only go to things that the country wants and they're studying the new passport. So I think on Earth we're actually seeing also with this blockchain crypto in this one example how a new entity could be formed that lives in a virtual space. And that's what we're going to see in the... Uh, going out so i i do agree this is going to be a challenge for for societies mm-hmm. to get their mind around oh definitely and you know you can't really um do it nearly to the scale that i'm talking about on the earth a, a friend of mine uh, joe trout is the founder of the seasteading movement we had him at our conference last year and uh, um you know you really need to be able to be away from others and going back to the early part of our conversation no matter who sends people out there, eventually they are going to be independent. They're going to declare their independence. It happens every, all the way back to the Greek colonies in the uh, Mediterranean. Um, yeah, eventually they are like, no, no, we're Martians, we're, we're, we're Lunarians, yeah, we're, whatever. We're yeah, we're yeah. different. What, what is it, Total Recall? Uh, the movie Total Recall with uh, Schwarzenegger, you had the, the mining populations and the different populations that were separated because they grew up in different places. Right. And the, the best science fiction TV series on the air right now that we gave an award to last year at New Worlds, which is The Expanse. Yeah, that's right. cool. The Expanse talks about the, the belters who identify, you know, uh, and what's great, what's interesting is the belters can't handle gravity. So when they come yes. to the Earth, they have to be in water tanks. Um, stuff like that. I just, oh, I love that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. No, no, that's okay. So we've got, uh, we've got now thirty years. The conversation today, uh, conversation today and next. That's yeah. That's kind of we're we're touching on that, and um, maybe we should start moving towards um, kind of getting you to a, a close on this, if you don't mind. Um, I, uh, so 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 let's let's hit. We've got. Uh, which one do you want to hit? We'll pick one of them. You've got four left. Um, I'll roll them all into uh, one or two answers for you. Um, okay. Because uh, shortly after the top of the hour, I have to go into a meeting, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, we're having too much fun, David. And thank you for I, a great I told show. you. you, you were, everybody says to me they're challenged with the way I introduce and put the, get the program together. And then they get on it. And Jeffrey said he liked it. It was great. So yes, yeah, same thing. It's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a lot good... of fun, and and and, and I appreciate you being good, such a good you. interviewer. And and, and uh, um, yeah, and, and so look, um, and I'll send you a check. No, I won't. Uh, but anyway, the um, <laughs> okay. So the last part of this, um, I am actually working on a book called The Space Manifesto. I'm saying that because I need to be accountable to the world, so I actually finish the book, so people can say what the hell happened to that book, Rick. Um, uh, not to promote it, I just need to be knowing that people are expecting it so I can actually get it done. 
Um, it's putting accountability on yourself. Exactly. It's a thing I have to deal with with ADD. Um, and in that book, I will talk about the Declaration of Rights of Humanity and the Universe. The idea there is to talk about some of those things that we've already spoken of, but that I believe it is the right of all human beings to be able to go anywhere in the universe and do anything they want, utilize the resources of space to build anything they want of any time, so long as, and I'm not going to get the exact language here, but that they do not threaten, harm, um, or interfere with other human beings or sentient species, um, that they do not desecrate or destroy historical or sacred places, that they do not harm or destroy existing ecosystems, and they do not harm, threaten, uh, harm or threaten the earth, the mother world itself. And other than that, I believe that it should be hands off. People should be able to go do anything they want um, within those rules. So I've tried to put that into uh, a, just a, a declaration. It's about three pages long, uh, actually about two pages long. And that's within the Space Manifesto project that I'm working on. Um, and this all ties into what such an incredible opportunity that we have you know, right now, David, we are, we are at this moment in time, we're using the same technology, the same brains, the same people, the same infrastructure, the same capabilities. We can either destroy this planet utterly or take the seeds of life from this world to places that are now dead to take the civilization of the earth and expand it into the universe to become what I believe is part of our destiny, part of who we are, which is the sensing mechanism by which the universe knows of itself. You know, um, I've done a piece recently that I call the hands of Gaia, that I believe we are the hands of Gaia. We are the mechanism by which the earth will expand, reproduce, and go out into the universe. And it becomes to me uh, even more critical if one starts to look at the things that we're finding in space or more directly the things we're not finding in space. And that is at least within the sphere of our ability to, to see and judge other civilizations. We're not finding them. I, I have friends of SETI, they're looking desperately and deeply, they're not finding it. Now, maybe that means they've moved on, maybe they've done these other things, but there may be two other possibilities. One, um, or a few other possibilities. One, they got to a certain level they reached a level like we do, where we are, mm -hmm. and they had the same global leadership and they didn't solve their climate change and they died. Yep. Okay? That's, I believe that may be the big one. Um, or um, we may be the first within the sphere that we can understand and reach to actually get to this level. And we may be the first experiment of a technologically capable uh, intelligent, quote unquote, in quotes, species that can actually venture beyond the bubble of the mother world into space. So in either of those possibilities, I believe it becomes even more incumbent on us to save this planet, to do the right thing vis-a-vis -vis the Earth. I'm not all I'm not about fleeing. Um, I wrote an essay recently called The Elysium Effect 
uh, where I talk about the movie with Matt Damon in where the, the rich people flee to what I call the ultimate gated community of a, you know, a habitat in space and leave the earth to the underlings, you know, the 0.1% leave. Um, yeah. And uh, that's a very scary message to put out there. And we have to be careful about it. But I believe that, go ahead. It was either Stephen Hawking's or one of the scientists who had a, they came up with some type of an experiment on, I think it was a, a flight that I was taking. I was watching a video and I saw this experiment and they showed how it was so challenging for the, the evolution of species, plant, animal, on Earth. And that was a risk that it had happening, the fact that the moon was there. Then it was the getting out of the water and and then it was the development of tools. Then it was, the, and they went all the way through and they, they went through this whole piece of how challenging each step was for uh, for the inhabitants of the earth to get to the point in which we are today. And at the very end, this ball is going and it looks like it's going to make it. And at the bottom end, it's, there's a, a flash of fire or spark that goes poosh and it extinguishes it all. Yep. And what the point was with everything we've done, we could still destroy it. And the odds are that humanity will destroy itself and the earth before it gets out. Exactly. So that we have a larger chance of doing that than we do of succeeding. Absolutely. And so there becomes, from that arises, part of the imperative that we get this breakout going quickly. Not to leave, not to escape, although some might, but so that we can expand and inspire and also defend the planet. So there are three projects that I would love to see us do. I call them the Earth Savers. You know, it's I have the nonprofit Earthlight Foundation, and uh, so it's a clever name. But uh, the Earth Saver projects, there would be three of them that I would love to see undertaken. One of them is um, what I call Earth Shine, which is the development of space solar power, so that we can get rid of coal and nuclear power on the Earth and capture the sun's power in space and beam it down. Um, yeah. Number two uh, would be Earth Shield which is us getting out into space and having an understanding of the neighborhood such that we can protect ourselves from incoming uh, asteroids, yeah, uh, distinct, uh, extinction level events. Um, and number three, which is a little more controversial, which I, I call Earth Shade, which would be the idea that if we do tip into what uh, scientists call runaway greenhouse, if we hit a tipping point where the planet is heating up faster and faster and faster as occurs in a greenhouse to where you're heading towards the planet actually becoming like Venus, where no yeah. life can survive, which we have right next to us, that model of Venus. If that were to start to happen and it becomes an emergency, uh, there are people that talk about geoengineering, you know, putting white bubbles all over everything to reflect the light, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with those is you can't really turn those off so easily yeah. once you start them. However, we could take swarms of intelligent robots, send them out to asteroids, a few asteroids in the L points, and move those asteroids, one at a time, by the way, between the Earth and the sun, and drop slightly, ever so slightly, the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth. Now, the nice thing about that is that using the same technology we use to discover planets around other suns, and we do that by what's called studying the occultation. In other words, if a little speck moves inside in front of one of these suns, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of miles from here, away from us, we're able to actually pick that up. That's how sensitive our telescopes are. Uh, 
and then we can tell there's a little planet there. Using that same technology, we could move an asteroid, a small one, between the Earth and the, the sun, do a measurement, do the yeah. uh, you know uh, algorithms, math. yeah, the math, yeah. and figure out whether that would work or not. And if it worked, maybe we could move a second one, maybe a third, a fourth, a fifth. And by the way, the robots stay attached to them. They're using the resources on the asteroid for their propellant. Um, yeah. And then you say, well, you know what? Let's just move that one out of the way. So you could, it's literally, going all the way back to that word from the beginning, literally the ability to open and close the blinds in space. And what's beautiful about all three of these projects is, A, they help save the planet. B, they give us something grand and exciting and, uh, and amazing to, to rally around that all nations can be involved in. Um, and, and C, when you're done with them, the technologies, or as you're doing them, technologies and infrastructure ca capability you develop help you create an, a spacefaring civilization. Um, so those so, are some so projects. Go ahead. So that's this is great. We're going to end it here. Yes. I uh, I think I've been trying to call you for two years to get you on this program, mm -hmm. uh, even though we haven't been around for two. So I so much appreciate that you have taken the time to with me to fill me in on what you're working on and some of these thoughts because they're really cool i think you've got some neat ideas i think you you are I, i'm not a psychologist nor will i pretend to be one you don't have add you have the ability to concentrate on a topic and you do like mo many people you go off top or tangent because you're excited about something you did a fantastic job of giving me at least some new information that i hadn't thought about and uh so i appreciate it so thank you very much well i thank you david and i want to tell you i look forward to seeing you at new worlds november 15th and 16th and having you on stage with us uh because i think you you do an amazing job of communicating as well so Thank you. So uh, for everybody, the Project Moon Hut or the Age of Infinite is supporting Project Moon Hut. Our initiative has been since the very beginning to establish sustainable life on the moon. That's not self-sustaining life, but sustainable life, which we could support through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. And our desired outcome is to change how we live on Earth for all species. So we are in many ways in sync with what Rick has been talking about in a different context. And we have, we've designed what Rick, you might find to be very useful to do the acceleration that you're thinking about. So with that said, there's a few ways you can, uh, you can go to www.projectmoonhut.org is one way to reach us. You can reach to me specifically at david at davidgoldsmith.com. Instagram, if you're interested, uh, Mr. David Goldsmith. You can connect with us on Twitter at, at Project Moonhot. And we've also got LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. So you've got many ways to reach out to us. Appreciate you listening. There will be more shows coming. And thank you, Rick, once again for your time. For that, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.